So Matthew 22, verse 1, it says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. And the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. In the Jewish social life, the wedding was it. That was kind of the the happening of the week or the month or the year. The wedding was the huge deal. Weddings are a big deal to us, no doubt about it. There's months of planning. There's lots of money and expense that gets poured into these things. There's lots of people involved. There's lots of uh, time filling out uh, guest lists and mailing invitations and decorating. And there's a lot that goes into a wedding, and they're a great event. But for the Jewish people... They would last for several days. In fact, if it was a, a wedding of nobility, sometimes it would be weeks. It would go beyond a week even. Pretty much a wedding was about as lavish as you could afford. Well, if you think about it with a king, what can the king afford? Well, there's not too many expenses he probably can't afford. And so for a week plus, he would be having the best of foods and lavish decoration. It would just be an amazing, amazing experience. In fact, he tries to draw that out in the parable because a king sends to these people that were already invited previously because it says call out to the invited people and tell them now it's time to come. And they don't come. And then he starts going through, hey, the food's ready. Everything's ready. And so he's pointing out the, the magnificence of this event. And so as we look at it this morning, what is the parable all about? Jesus helps us a lot at both the beginning and the end of the parable. Right from the very beginning, he tells you it's about the kingdom of heaven. And so as we look at this, it says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king that gave this wedding feast. And so the wedding feast that these people are invited to, it represents the kingdom of heaven. So as we look all through this parable, that's going to help for us to have a guiding factor that it's referring to people being invited into the kingdom of heaven. Of God. Now, the word kingdom in the Bible is used in a few different ways. It's used very specifically of some time periods. It's used looking forward to the future kingdom of Christ, which is a specific thousand year time period where he's going to have his kingdom on this earth and he'll be ruling and reigning from the throne in Jerusalem. But it's also used in a more generic way or a general way where it's, it speaks of God's rule and reign in this world. And so, in that sense, it kind of encompasses all of it. It encompasses Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. It encompasses our lives as we're believers and we submit to Christ's rule in our life that we're part of His kingdom. It doesn't take away from the fact that there's going to be a literal thousand-year kingdom someday, but the word is just used 
in a couple of different ways. And so as Jesus is pointing to this, he's pointing to the kingdom, which Israel was looking forward to. They were expecting this Messiah to come and to set up his kingdom. And that's what they were anticipating. But when Jesus came in and presented himself as king, they said, nope, you're not the guy. And by the end of the week, they'll be chanting, crucify him. So Jesus is teaching them. He's telling them what's going to happen with this kingdom. And that's what this parable is all about. Now, if you jump to the end of the parable, he kind of summarizes it up nicely. We won't deal with it right now. We'll get there when we get there at the end of the service here. But he kind of summarizes it nicely, and he says, this is the point of the parable. And he makes a statement there. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. The invitation to the wedding feast is actually representing an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we look at that invitation, we're going to see, first of all, that it's a magnificent invitation, and that's what we've already been pointing out, is that here you have a wedding and a, at a time and a place when they did up weddings big and extravagant, all they could afford. It's a wedding of royalty and the king providing a wedding for his son. So it really would have been probably no expense spared. The best of foods, the best of drink, the best of decorations, the best of lodging, the best of everything that you could think of. It's supposed to stand in contrast to the rejection that it faces. We also see that this invitation was going to be a universal. But the beginning of the parable, it's an invitation to a select group of people. By the end of the parable, it's an invitation to everybody. Well, who is the select group of people? Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen at the moment that he's at right there, coming right up on into the very near future. Remember when he sent out the, the twelve? We learned earlier in Matthew when he sent them out on kind of a mission trip and they would go out to the other villages and preach the gospel and share the good news of the kingdom, it said. So as they're out sharing the good news of the kingdom and he gave them ability to heal and perform miracles and as they're out, they're out doing that, he gives them some specific instruction. They're supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're not supposed to go up into the Samaritans. They're not supposed to go out to the Gentiles. They're just supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the New Testament makes it very clear that, that salvation is of the Jews and the salvation was offered to the Jews first. Jesus came as their Messiah, the answer, the fulfillment to the promise, the covenant made with Abraham. And so Jesus was coming to the Jewish people and offering the kingdom. Well, that's the group. He said, first of all, the king gives us, gonna give his son's wedding and there's a group of people out there that's already invited. Let them know it's time to come. And so he invites them again. It's time to come. They don't come. He tells them again. Go out and tell them, look, everything's ready. Nothing holding back. Food's going to get cold. Come on. But they don't come. In the parable, the nation of Israel is at that point right then when he gave that parable. Jesus was calling them to the kingdom, but they would not come. His invitation then becomes universal. Now go out and invite everybody. Invite the good, the bad, the person along the wayside. Go stand at the street corner. Invite people off the street. Everybody. So the invitation becomes universal. And that's exactly what Jesus will do with the apostles. They will be witnesses. And when he tells them at the end of the book of Matthew, which we're coming up to, and when he sends out his disciples, just before Jesus goes, ascends back up into heaven, he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus says, go out and make disciples of every nation, of all peoples. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and in Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. 
And if you look at them from where they were at in Jerusalem, he said, you're going to be my witnesses here, right where you're at. And then you're going to go out from there into all of Judea. That would be like going from Little Fork to the whole state of Minnesota. And then he says, then you're going to go to Samaria. Samaria would be like going to Iowa. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as you follow the book of Acts, that really outlines the book of Acts. These Pentecost came and they witnessed to Jerusalem. And then persecution came and pushed them out into the other parts of Judea. And then more of that scattered them up into Samaria. And then a vision given to Peter in Acts chapter 10 pushes them out into the Gentile nations. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9 would be the Apostle to the Gentiles. And you see through the book of Acts, the Gospel gets spread all the way as far as Rome. The Apostle Paul, when he'd go into any city, he would always go into the synagogue, go to the Jew first, and then they'd reject it and he'd go out to the Gentiles. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. Is look, you were the Israel, you were the chosen people. But you're rejecting me. You're rejecting it. You're turning away from the kingdom. And so the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to somebody else. It's going to be, the scope is going to be universal. Yes, it would still be called out. Right now he's calling out Jews and Gentiles alike, but the scope would then become universal in the gospel, which actually fulfills the promise given to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. We also see that it is a rejected invitation. It says in verse 3 that they would not come. Again in verse 4, he sends out and invites them. But in verse 5 it says, but they paid no attention. Paid no attention. They just ignored it. Can you imagine that? The king of the land, son's getting married, sends you a personal invitation and then a follow-up reminder to get you there on time and you just ignore it. Well, make that even greater because it's it's representing the king of the world, the, the God of the world. God the Father, banquet for His Son. He's calling us to His kingdom, and it just gets ignored. Well, why does it get ignored? It says, they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. Now, what are those things? Those are just, they're the mundane things of life. They're the everyday business of life. Remember these feasts that last a while, these wedding feasts. And it said, no, sorry, i got to go to work. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go out. There's money to be made. I'm going to go out and earn money. Now, notice in and of themselves, these things, are they wrong things? Anything wrong with a farm? No. Anything, anything wrong with business? No. But that gets in the way of you going to the wedding or the son of the king. You've probably got your priorities a little bit out of whack here. And with what it's representing, what is it representing? It's that invitation to the kingdom of God. And so if, you're, if your business, if your everyday things of life get in the way of your relationship with God or, or you're accepting an invitation into God's kingdom... Let's just put it as plain as we can. If the everyday things of life in this life where you get about 70 years keep you from an eternity in heaven, would everybody agree that's a bad decision? Because <laughs> that, that's really, that's plain and simple. That's what he's saying. He's saying, boy, the, the everyday um, things that you're involved in are keeping you so, dis, you're so interested in those, you're so uninterested in this, in this kingdom. And boy, you know what the sad thing is? That's exactly where we're at today still, isn't it? I would say this probably describes most of the people that are going to populate hell. They're not out there against God. They're not trying to silence Christianity. They're not, they're not trying to prove that there is no God. God is not something that they're hostile toward. They're busy with, and it can be good things. They're busy with their families. They're busy with their jobs, their careers. They're busy with their friends. They're busy with their with their hobbies and their interests. I have a lot of hobbies and interests that are good. I like to hunt and fish, and there's nothing wrong with those. Boy, when those things keep us from God, boy, are we in a poor situation. God is the God of the universe. 
and he's being ignored. I know one thing as a human being. I'm not going to be here forever. I've seen enough people die that I know someday I'm going to be one of them. I know that there isn't anybody that lives here and now in this life forever. But I've seen a few people push past 100, not very many of them. I've known a few people in their 90s, more in their 80s, more in their 70s. I've never met anybody that's 200 years old. So I know that this is short. Well, if I think that there's an whole eternity of time beyond my life, I always think, boy, isn't that something worth looking into? And it astounds me that people that don't have salvation, that haven't come to Christ, that don't know God, don't have a bigger interest. Why aren't they beating down the doors to find out what the answer to these questions are? But you know what? One time I was one of them. I wasn't beating anybody's door down to find the answer to the question either. I was just ignoring God. I was just going about my life. I was going to school. I was playing sports, involved in hobbies. I had my friends just going about life. He's rejected because of disinterest. But then he is also rejected because of uh, what I'd call antagonism or, or hostility. There are those people out there that aren't just disinterested. They're actively against it. Jesus faced it his whole last year of ministry. We called it as the year of opposition because the religious leaders were opposing him, trying to get rid of him, trying to silence him, trying to kill him even. In the parable, he says, some of them beat the servants. They killed the servants. Jesus is talking to them about their history. And he's saying, look at what you've done. How many of the prophets of Israel as Israel persecuted down through the ages and it's going to continue they would chase down and hunt down the apostle Paul and Peter and all the 12 apostles would die in torturous ways except for John he would he would be tortured he just wouldn't die during the torture and so they would reject them but do it you know hostile way. We see the same thing in our day. There are people out there that like Richard Dawkins and others, and Bill Maher and different people that are just looking to silence Christianity, looking to prove there is no God, trying to do what they can do to get rid of this idea of God and any guise of worship in our life. There are people out gladly chiseled out of the stone on our monuments in Washington, D.C., or even our state buildings here in Minnesota, anything that is a reference to God or the Bible within those things. There are people that are just, just not, you know, there's a freedom from religion group in our country. There's all kinds of people that it's not enough for them just to ignore God. They've got to try to get rid of Him. Jesus saw it. We've seen it every time since as we see the rejection of this invitation of the kingdom. And it comes at their own their own expense. It's a costly rejection. To the ones that killed the servants and that, Jesus said that He would come against, against Israel, that He would come and destroy them. And if you read through the commentaries, there's a little bit of debate about whether or not that has literally happened or not. And the reason for that is, in AD 70, the Romans came through and just sacked Jerusalem. And in the last part, remember this is a universal uh, invitation, but the invitation is specific. And that's when we see in the parable, there's the guy that when he comes into the wedding feast, he sees a guy there that's not dressed in the right clothes. That's not in the wedding clothes or in the wedding garments. Well, but what do we know about it from what we see in the parable? We do know that obviously there was a wedding garment that was supposed to be worn. Apparently the person that came in and was not in the wedding garment knew that he should be in a wedding garment. Because when they come up to him and say, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He's speechless. He just doesn't say anything. It's like your kids when you find something broken. Who broke this? All of a sudden it's real quiet. Either that or he gets six not me's out of five kids. 
That's what this guy he says. Hey, how are, how are you in here without the, without a wedding garment? And he just gets speechless. He knows he's in the wrong place, uh, that he's uh, inappropriately dressed, and this is not about dress codes. It's about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ is what it's pointing to. There's, there's only one way into heaven, and Jesus said he's it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. In John 14, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says there's no other name under heaven given among man whereby we must be saved other than the name Jesus Christ. To Timothy, Paul would write, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. He's the only way into heaven. And what this is showing is in this picture is that this person is not coming in the right way. He's not entering the wedding feast through Christ. It's just like Adam and Eve. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they first sinned? They first sinned and brought that sin upon, upon themselves and, and they felt the guilt of it and the shame of it. What did they do? They tried to clothe themselves. They took thick leaves and they, they, they make clothes for themselves. They hid and they're trying to cover up and they make their own clothing. And what does God do when He gets there? Clothing's not appropriate. You can't come in your own clothing. You can't cover your own sin. And so God takes the skin off of an animal. So an innocent animal died to provide a skin that would become clothing for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. And we're still, appropriately so, covering our nakedness today because of sin in this world. But their attempt at covering themselves was inappropriate. It did not work. In fact, when you get up to, to uh, Isaiah chapter 64, and verse 6, it says, All of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They're like a leaf that withers. And I think that the picture that he's referring to there, he's looking back at Adam and Eve, and just as they clothe themselves with leaves, what's going to happen in about four or five days? That leaves drying out. It's crumbling. It's not going to be any good for what they're doing with it. A lot of times people try to get to heaven on their own works and their own clothing, their own efforts, their own religion. And God says, no, look, you can come to Jesus Christ just as you are, but you cannot get into heaven like that. The only way to get into heaven is through Christ. And that's the point that he's making. And it's a costly, remember the point is, it's a costly rejection because even this person that is found in the wedding feast that kind of sneaks in and then found to not belong, he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ, he doesn't have faith in Christ, it says that he is out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is the picture of hell that Jesus most often gets. And a lot of Christianity today doesn't like to recognize the reality of hell, but it is because they don't understand the holiness and the wrath of God. And uh, hell is absolutely real. It's usually described by Jesus as being a place of torment, a place of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and a place of outer darkness. Well, some people will jump on that and say, well, how can it be a place of outer darkness and fire at the same time? You can use fire for light. You know what I remember when I was in college? The fire department came in to give us a safety speech during chapel one day. And a fireman was describing what it was like to be in a fire. And he, and he had no, not trying to make any spiritual point whatsoever or illustrate hell at all about it. It wasn't even on his mind. It was just about us having fire alarms and stuff like that. He says, in a fire, he says, you think you can find your way around and everything? He said, you can't. He said, when you get in the midst of a fire, he says, it's so black you can feel it. He said, you can't see your hand in front of your face in there. And he said, it's just the eeriest, creepiest thing I've ever felt. And he said, that's why people that have lived their whole life in the same bedroom will wake up at night in the middle of a fire and they'll die there because they can't find the door. He said, that's how black it is inside of a fire. 
That's the way Jesus describes hell. And he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven even, as a warning to us. And then lastly, we see in this, we see that it is a gracious invitation. Because notice what, remember I told you at the end of the parable, Jesus would make his point. He'd say this is the point of the whole thing. So as we look at the parable at the beginning, he says this is about an invitation to the kingdom of God, an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. Talk about those that would accept it and, and those that would reject it. But then he gets to the end of it, and he makes this statement. For many are called, but few are chosen. Throughout the parable, we see the grace of God and the invitation. And he offers up this call. What, is it, what does he mean by a call? How many are called and how many are chosen? What, what do those two things mean? Well, the word call is used a couple different ways in the Bible. There's a specific call or an effectual call that theologians will call it. It's an internal call, and then there's an external call. Now, it can be a little bit confusing. You have to see the context of what he's saying to know how it's being used, which context is always the key to everything. Well, in this passage, he says many are called, but few are chosen. So in other words, not everybody that's called is chosen. And so what is the call referring to? It's referring to the invitation. He's just called all these people to the wedding feast. They didn't come. He called them again. They didn't come. He said, put those people aside. And he called others. And many of them came, not all, but many of them came. In the Bible, there's also a sense, and the reason it can be confusing is, there's also a sense in the Bible where the call is an effectual call that happens in our life that we don't resist. We see it in Romans chapter 8. It says, those whom, whom God predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Glorified is when you're in heaven. Predestines before the foundation of the world. And it says, everybody that was predestined is called. Everybody that's called is justified. That's the moment of salvation. Everybody that's justified is glorified. So in one sense of the word call, there isn't anybody that's called that misses heaven. But in another sense... Of this same word, there are people called that miss heaven. So what's the difference? The difference is this one was an external call. It was just an outward invitation that went out to the people. It was not that call that God, where God speaks right into our heart and draws us to Himself. Maybe this verse here will help clear it up a little bit. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice, who is he talking about? He's talking about saved people, believers. He's saying, how are they believers? They are called. They're, he uses that same word to refer to them. They're the called. So obviously it's speaking of something that God does in our heart to draw us to Himself where our will becomes in line with His will and we put our faith and trust in Him and we believe on Him. There's other places that He refers to the people, uh, to Christians as people who are the called. Just as He also refers to Christians as the chosen that we also see in this passage. He says many are called, so the gospel goes out to the whole world. Many are called. But how many people believe? Few. Relatively few compared to how many are called. Now, but whose will is it? i got to admit, I wrestle with this, you wrestle with this, we all wrestle with it, but it doesn't make it any less biblically true. How does God call and not desire for anybody to perish but everybody to repent and still be the agent of choosing when it comes to salvation in our experience and in our world? But I don't see any biblical way around it, and I don't want to get around it. I heard one person say one time, try to explain this and you can lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you lose your soul. So, in fact, I even think that the biblical position is to not understand how it works. 
Because when you read chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spends three chapters on this subject. And at the end of the subject, he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? In other words, I can't understand all this stuff. God is too great for me to be able to unravel. But we do see this specific truth. We see it uh, taught by Jesus. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So look at that. Everybody who believes in Christ is described as the people that are given to Christ by God, the Father. And that it is God's will for those that God gives the Son that He loses none. That's why we're eternally secure. Because it's not based on us, it's based on Him. But then just a few verses later, He even says this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I will raise Him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. So there's something that God has to do in our hearts to bring us to the point of belief in Christ, and that is that effectual call that is referred to in 1 Corinthians. So it is based on, as Jesus is telling us here in this parable, God's choosing, God's will. James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which He has promised to those who love Him. In Ephesians chapter 1, He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for the adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Colossians, it says then, because of that same thing that He said in Ephesians, we should put on as God's chosen ones. In other words, we ought to live like God's chosen ones, because that's who we are. Holy and beloved, compassionate, hearts of kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. So notice notice what he's saying. He's writing these believers, and he's saying, we know that God has chosen you. Now, why does he know that God chose them? Because they show it in their life. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and full of conviction. He's saying there's some reason that when we preach the gospel to you guys, it came in power, and you believed, you were convinced. In fact, he goes on to say, you've been examples to other Christians in other places. And because of all that, we know that God You'd think it would say, we know that you've chosen God. But it doesn't say that. It says, we know that God's chosen you. God is sovereign in this. God is gracious in this. Our salvation is completely based on the grace of God. It's not based on a little bit of grace of God, and then if we're good enough to believe it, then we receive it. It's completely based on the grace of God. It has to be, because if it's left up to me, I lose it. If it's left up to me, I wouldn't have it to begin with because there's nothing good enough inside of me that makes me hunger or thirst after God. That's all Romans chapter 3 is about. There's nothing in me, in my flesh, good enough that makes me seek after God or desire God or live for God. He had to choose me. I would have never chose Him. 
And in Romans 11, which is really the most extensive passage that deals with it, but again, you're only getting a small part of it. Uh, it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against, against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have dem- demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so Jesus says in the end of the parable that the whole point of the parable is many are called, few are chosen. Why did the people who were all invited to the feast, why were they so caught up in daily events? Why were they so distracted, disinterested? Why were, they, why were some hostile against God? Because that's, that's humanity left outside of the grace of God. You know what, if it's not for the grace of God, if God doesn't reach into your heart and mine, then we continue on our path of disinterest. We don't really have an appetite for God and we go about our daily lives in the same way we've done over and over and we'll completely ignore Him. Some of us will even be hostile towards Him. But God in His gracious does not leave mankind to that kind of destruction, but He pulls out from it a remnant.